0: Well, folks, we made it to December of 2020, and this year has been crazy. You should treat yourself this holiday season with a prime rib, and not just any prime rib. You need a United Harvest Wagyu Angus Cross prime rib for you and your family to chow down on, throw it in the smoker for hours, hours, literally, please do this. Send us some photos. I would love to see it. Enjoy it with your family because you you need it, okay? This year sucked, guys. Come on. Go to unitedharvest.com. Check out the specials that they are having on their prime rib and any other meat that they have in stock. It's incredible meat. Trust me. I've tried it. Unitedharvest.com. Type in the promo code friends fifteen. For 15% off your first order, unitedharvest.com. What am I gonna do? Quit? That's not an option. You got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up, man. That's my philosophy. Welcome back to
1: Legendary Mindset. I am your host, Jake P. Richardson, and this week's episode is with um, someone I was really excited to interview. I've been I've been wanting to interview him for a while. Um, it's someone who um, you know I look up to a lot in terms of what they've done for the entire industry. Um, if you and if you look back in terms of you know his old web page this guy used to run the world in terms of sheep and 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 winning shows and, and breeding consistent livestock in terms of ones that just always kind of looked the same um, and and was really just a mastermind uh, when it came to line breeding and, and kind of getting those early genetics figured out and being really competitive and really consistently uh... doctor clay elliot um, he uh... we interviewed him Two or three days ago, um, there at his house in Calumet, Oklahoma, um, got a really cool um, interview for you guys to listen to. It's an hour and a half long, uh, but I think it's really exciting. There's a lot of info in there. There's a a ton of history um, in in terms of those old bucks that used to kind of dominate the game and kind of where his philosophy on good livestock started, which is a really interesting story. But before we get to Clay's episode, we are going to hear from our sponsors and Legendary Mindset's premier sponsor is Durafirm, which is a biozyme brand. Uh, Durafirm is a line of sheep and goat mineral supplements designed to ensure your herd is receiving optimal digestive health and nutrition, resulting in maximized performance this means this product has everything they need in, in terms of vitamins and minerals um you're not going to come up at the end of the year in terms of lambing season and f- have a big problem go down and be like you know why are we having this problem you know we shouldn't be mineral deficient at all um you don't have to worry about that this kind of has all of your bases covered in terms of what your livestock need to function and remain healthy through breeding season, um, when they're bred, lambing, and you know even in the open times. Um, products include DuraFirm Sheep Concept Aid Protein Tub, DuraFirm Sheep Concept Aid Loose Mineral with and without heat options, and a DuraFirm Goat Concept Aid Loose Mineral. Um, go ahead and check out DuraFirm.com, find yourself a dealer, and get some products that will work for you. But without further ado, here is Dr. Clay Elliott. Set with Jake P. So Clay, have you always lived here in Coleman, Oklahoma? Yeah.
2: Cal, Cal, Calumet. Cal.
1: Calumet. Man, I really messed that Cal, one up. Calumet. Yep. 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 Y'all been raising club lambs here for for how long?
2: We've been we've been in Calumet since uh, 2006, I guess. Um, I grew up in Newcastle, Wyoming, on a cow calf operation uh, with my family, and. Um, have two older brothers. Uh, I was the youngest by 11 years. And so my older brothers always thought that I was the spoiled one for sure. Mm -hmm. I managed to get out of the spankings and all that kind of stuff because they always saved me. But we run uh, a group, uh, a flock of sheep. We had some quarter horse mares. We had a few dairy cows that uh, my dad would milk occasionally and my brothers and um, so we were we were pretty active and we were diversified we cut our own hay and did a little bit of that uh, but we were diversified but I can tell you that um, I enjoyed my time growing up on the ranch but was definitely ready to get out of there when it was time to go to school and sow my oats mm-hmm.
1: so did, your, did your parents- Your parents farm for a living? then?
2: Yeah, they they ranch. They run, uh, we had about a 500 head cow-calf operation. Uh, um, We had a few Maine cows at the time. We had uh, some commercial cows, some Angus-based cows at the time. But uh, anyway, my my oldest brother was was pushing kind of into the the purebred Maine deal and then the club calf deal at the time. And so anyway, that was kind of our, uh, I guess, our business. Yeah,
1: So you were involved in the show world and you guys showed cattle or was there any sheep at that point at all?
2: We, we actually, I grew up showing it all. I grew up showing cattle. I showed a few horses actually, uh, showed some, some market hogs, some market lambs, some breeding ewes, some heifers. Um, we, we showed quite a little of it. I, I actually liked it and enjoyed uh kind of learning the different species um and i think that's what kind of helped me later on in life with the judging teams
1: so were you on any 4-h or ffa judging teams at all back then or anything like that
2: i i I was on my ffa livestock judging team and it was uh you know we didn't prepare we um uh, we, we judged a few slides maybe That's and fine. we maybe uh gave a set of reasons once or twice before our state contest but we we were not competitive we were not trying to be competitive and I just did it because I thought it was something that would be interesting and kind of fun to do yeah. so and was not any good at it I knew nothing so for
1: sure. so at that point in your life like high school age what do you think you're going to do for the rest of your life or do you even think is that thought even crossed your mind at that point? Yeah. Well,
2: when, I, when I was in high school, I, uh, you know, my grades were good. I took my grades pretty seriously. But I, I don't know if I really knew what I was going to do. I, I knew I was going to go to college, and I knew that I wanted to be involved in agriculture. But I had no idea what. And then uh, as I got farther into it and kind of got into my senior year, my freshman year of college, I thought, well... Maybe I want to do this embryo transfer thing in sheep. And that was, you know, that was before embryo transfer was really uh, had taken off. I mean, it was a little bit of a foreign concept at that point. Some of it was being done, but it wasn't very successful. And we were sure far from as good at it as we are now. And uh, I thought that might be something that I wanted to do. And so I majored in biology. When I went to college, I didn't... uh, went to Casper College and was a biology major and had no interest in livestock judging whatsoever. But I found myself, you know, there in the dorms. I didn't want to live in the dorms when I went to college. I just thought that was almost a level of being beneath me. Um, and, And I shouldn't say that, but that's kind of how I felt. And when I, my parents made me, and that was the best thing they ever did, one of the best things they ever did for me has made me live in those dorms because I made so many really good friends. And that is what actually hooked me up with the kids that were on the livestock judging team there at Casper. And I found that, man, I liked those kids. Those were the kids that, were, um, that did what I like to do. They talked about livestock. They had shown livestock. They were judging. And, and they're the ones that actually pulled me kind of into the judging uh, realm. And I didn't judge as a freshman, but as a, as a sophomore, I did. And so I was on the fast track, very quick to to make the team, and I did make that uh, sophomore team. I started as a sophomore, and I made the sophomore team and was on the judging team in Kansas City in October, and then Louisville, and uh, made it through the entire year. But I will tell you that uh, my first judging contest at the American Royal was not good. Um, I trained wrecked. I, I trained wrecked a set of market hogs there that phew, I bet I placed them backwards if I remember nearly backwards anyway it wasn't good but uh it was it was a good experience and that was what started it all.
1: So you mentioned when when you're on those high school judging teams it wasn't something you guys really you know tried super hard at was was this college experience were you were you going to do it different were you were you trying to be really good or were you just kind of uh just kind of being a part of the team
2: at that point? No I'm a I'm a I'm a fierce competitor (laughs) and um so once I decided that I was going to accept a scholarship there at Casper, I was going to give it everything I had. And so, as I said, uh, you know, I didn't have that freshman year like everyone else had to prepare for their sophomore year. So I had to learn really fast in about three months time. And so I did. I spent extra time giving reasons. I spent extra time in front of the mirror in my dorm room, given those reasons, um, man, I worked really, really hard to catch up because I had no speaking ability whatsoever. I mean, I had no idea how to even give a set of reasons. And so it was a crash course in a hurry. And then I did. I spent extra time and got fairly good at it. But uh, I would say I was a long shot from great at it uh, in junior college. But I did, by the time I got to senior college, I was actually fairly competitive and understood how to do it um, and how to give reasons. And and my my skill was never, um, you know, being extra dramatic or being able to uh, bring a lot of really cool terminology in, but um, I, seldom, I seldom fib to you. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't tell many stories about the livestock. That was the only thing I really knew um, is what I saw. Yeah. So I didn't get to make stuff up for you. I just told you what it was. So.
1: Who was your, uh, your coach there at Casper?
2: My coach, my coach at Casper college was Kelly Birch. And he was a very, very successful judging team coach. And, um, very, he had a tons and tons of teams that won. And he was a master at taking really smart kids and just turning them into very successful livestock judges. Um, I will tell you that, that, um, Mr. Birch was a very good evaluator, but he taught our teams how to how to put kinds in places. He, you know, the big bodied one, the big bodied heifer was first. The tall narrow heifer was last. Uh, you know, the the short round one was third, etc. He, he categorized them and we stuck them into places. and And I had a really hard time. I was not a good junior college livestock judge. I, I wasn't. It's partly because I was behind. Partly because I. Oh, I didn't really understand the concepts of what he was trying to teach us because it was kinds and places. And when I, when I finally got to senior college at Colorado State is when I finally was able to, to judge livestock and, and evaluate them and put what I thought the ones that had the most good into the top hole and the ones that had the most problems were last instead of putting a specific um, type into a specific spot. So I got, got a lot better at it. Yeah, for
1: sure. So at this point, I mean, you grew up showing. You guys were around Livestock a lot. Uh, you, you were exposed to two different coaches through the collegiate judging. Did you have a vision of, of what you thought were, were good ones and what were, were the bad kind, or, or was it kind of something you acquired from those coaches or, or maybe even a mentor later on?
2: Yeah. That, that's a good question because it that's something I think that evolved. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't something that as an 18- or 19-year-old kid, I if you have a... A clear vision of what you think um, the perfect animal looks like when you're 18, man, my hats are off to you because um, you're a lot smarter than than many of us because it took me some time to evolve and to, to create that mental picture. But uh, I, I did, um, you know, by the time I was well into senior college, you know, my junior um, coming into my senior year I pretty well had an idea of what I thought they were supposed to look like you know good heifers good lambs good pigs et cetera. I kind of had a vision on what I thought they were supposed to look like but um, I would say far from um, a per- picture perfect precise idea at that point
1: any involvement with the the sheep industry at this point in your life or are you just just judging livestock and, and being around the, the show world
2: yeah. no I had we my my middle brother and I had about a hundred head of ewes when when I was a kid there in Wyoming, and we we raised them for club lambs, and so I had well, I had some sheep, and we were we were struggling. I mean, we were we were I wouldn't say we were poor, but we were dang sure on a on a pretty tight um, tight checkbook. We didn't we didn't have the money to just go get the ones we we needed. We we had to kind of breed the pieces together and blend them and and we had some some degree of success raising our own we um we had some you know county fair winners and some state fair stuff there uh at that point but um we were not we were we were just a little bit like tom and jerry we were we were just (laughs) trying to piecemeal some things together and hopefully have some lambs that we could sell and you guys need to realize that at that point in time if you sold a three hundred dollar weather that was high i mean that was a ton of money i mean you that was your high weather for the year in all reality and that was not just us that was most people at the time and so man you sold a lot of 150 fifty dollar sheep and we're glad to get it yeah so
1: so what year was that like you were in college and and raising those sheep and what did club lambs look like at that point what was the industry all about
2: yep that would have been i was a uh Colorado State as a junior in 1990, uh, 1992. And so I would uh, take some of those lambs from our place in Wyoming. And, and then at some point in there, John and Gene Allred and I became partners. And then I would take some of those lambs and we would, um, sell those. I would bring bring them to Fort Collins, get them fat and ready and put them into some sales, uh, some club lamb sales, sell some privately. Uh, got some lambs, some Dorset lambs ready there, in a little old ramshackle barn uh, outside of Fort Collins that w- we took to the Oklahoma Black and White, and uh, so we, we we tried we tried to do the do it on a big level, but uh, well, we were we were sure wet behind the ears. We were really raw, really green.
1: So you finished college. You've been judging. You have a degree. Um... And you've got a flock of, you know, say a hundred ewes that are, you know, finding some success. What's your, what's your idea of what you want to do for, with your career at that point? Do you want to go teach, or do you want to go coach, or do you want to raise, raise livestock, or maybe all of it?
2: Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to have some success at Colorado State, and my judging team coach there was uh, Dr. Clint Rusk, and uh, he, he did teach me, he, he taught me how to evaluate livestock. Uh, we, we no longer had to put kinds in places and boy it took me a long time to understand that concept too because I'd been trained the other way and then man I had to change everything And, and once I figured out that it was okay to just just judge them man it got a lot easier but it took a little while to get that old hard training that was ingrained in me from from junior college out and, and clint did that he he was patient he was a good teacher he was a good livestock person um, I, I thought he was a good coach to be honest with you I mean we obviously uh, as strong-minded young people that think uh, you know a lot of stuff about livestock and have been growing you know grown up around it why you have your opinions mm-hmm. and there were times that you know I think all of us thought oh my gosh clint's fell off the deep end on this deal but he was very good. He was very good to me. He he taught me about livestock, and I appreciate that. I would say that he was the one that kind of mentor, one of my mentors in this thing uh, relative to the livestock business. But um, I I didn't, he, he asked me to help them train, help him train the next judging team as an assistant. So I stayed there in school, and I finished up my senior year, and I helped him, and, and I loved it. I loved teaching. I loved showing those kids about livestock. And that was actually when I decided that that was something I wanted to do. Um, I had no idea growing up that I was going to be a livestock judging coach. No clue. But that's when I decided that that was something I wanted to do. And then Texas Tech at the time had an opening. Uh, Sam Jackson, Dr. Sam Jackson was stepping away from hauling the livestock judging team at that point, And he was looking for a graduate assistant and so I applied and, and luckily got that position, and that was where it all started at Texas Tech. I, when year was that? Oh, gosh, you're going to test me a little. 1994, 1994, mm-hmm. yep. And then my first team was in 1995 with a with – man, I just – I think I had six kids. And yeah. actually, yep, and they were uh, – boy, they taught me a ton. I hadn't I had no idea what coaching was about, and I was – um boy I was fiery to say the least I was fiery and boy I was competitive and boy I would cut those poor kids to the bone and um but those kids were actually um fourth in Phoenix they were maybe fourth in Denver they won Fort Worth they were in the top five in Houston and these were a nice set of kids. Um, one of those uh, young people is now one of the directors at the American Quarter Horse Association. One of them runs his own ranch. Two of them actually run their own ranch, uh, one in Wyoming, one in Texas. Um, now three of them, the third one's in Texas too, running sheep, goats, and cattle. So a very successful group of kids that were extremely smart, and they were they were good livestock judges too, but they taught me... So much more about training, and judging teams than I ever, ever uh, taught them. Yeah. They taught me a ton. So, and they were pretty hard on me. They would fire back at me, and so I learned some stuff from them how to prepare teams in the future.
1: So, when we talk about the the collegiate livestock judging today, like like at Blinn, when the sophomores would would be in, in season of judging, we wouldn't see them. You know, they're they're constantly working out. They're on the road, and the, these colleges almost treat them like you know they're college athletes, which they which they are. Um, at that point in time, what did the collegiate judging thing look like? Was it as competitive as, and cutthroat as it is today? Or was it more of just a, just an activity for all the colleges? Kind of how did that run down compared to now?
2: I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I, it's always been very competitive. From, from the very beginning when I started coaching teams, it was very competitive uh, and very cutthroat. And I always felt like those coaches, would, the other coaches would stab you in the back immediately. Still, I don't know what they're like today, but I felt like that the whole time I trained judging teams. Um, just because it was so competitive, it was so competitive to get good kids, to recruit those kids. Uh, and when I when I moved, uh, I was at Texas Tech and got a master's and PhD, and then was at New Mexico State for a couple of years and trained some nice kids. But when I moved to Redlands in the junior college level you know, that was a whole new game for me. I, I had never done the junior college deal and the kids were so raw and so young, 18-year-old kids that mom and dad had sent their their baby off to college for you to, you know, help to continue to raise them and teach them and, and hopefully um, make them successful at judging. And so that's what we did. And um, I... Well, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about those young people, but I found that I actually thought that the junior college uh, training of judging teams was much more rewarding for me because they did not come in already trained or already knew how to give reasons or already had a, a pretty good fundamental understanding of livestock. Man, these are, these were kids that just came in from a Either a high school judging team that had a little bit of understanding to to kids that had never done it at all, and I, I actually liked that. I liked it that those kids had no habits; they had really no preconceived ideas. And on the very first day of judging class, I would tell all of them to, to really check their attitude at the door. Uh, I, I didn't. I wasn't going to argue with them ever. I wasn't going to argue. We weren't going to argue. We weren't going to. You weren't going to. Um, try to lobby for a placing because I never put cuts on them. We never kept score. Um, and, and so I told them to just check check their attitude at the door. We were just all in this same thing together trying to learn and get better. And, and you know what? I think that that helped us from the very beginning that kids, I mean, they just decided, okay, fair enough. He's not going to try to jam this down our throat and we're not going to Try to fight for a placing. There's no points involved. There's nothing, there's no competitive in um, game. So we're not going to gain anything by arguing. So we might as well just figure out why he wants us to place it like this and just do it. And, and we had very few issues over the years, especially at the junior college level, um, when I started telling those kids, hey, we're just not going to do it. not going to argue about it we're just going to try to get better every single day and that was our goal better every day so I was I would get on those buses or the vans in the morning and I would hoop and holler and scream and tell them it's going to be a great day (laughs) and uh, um, and no matter where we were going it was the greatest livestock judging workout in America we were going to every day was the greatest livestock judging the greatest cattle workout in America we were going to it greatest sheep workout in america we were on our way the greatest hog workout in america we were on our way every single day so it was fun i think that kept those kids light and uh, you know maybe not didn't have quite so much pressure on them Yeah. so
1: i've talked to a lot of those not a lot but a few of the students you've had um on your judging teams before i interviewed you today and um josh cody told me that you know we worked harder we worked hard, but he made it fun for everybody. And Clay had a rule that if somebody passed gas on the judging van, they had to pull over, and that person had to do push-ups. Uh, is that true?
2: That's a fact. We would stop the van, and they would have to get out in front of the van, in front of in the headlights or whatever, and they would have to do 20 push-ups. And I, my hope was that uh, if they were really gassy, that their arms would hurt bad enough that they would reconsider. <laughs> pushing the next one so yes. that was my
1: thought you had a pretty strong team at that after all that yeah <laughs> yeah
2: we had a, we had a pretty strong team literally they had uh they had they were pretty fit had yeah. pretty big biceps so okay. absolutely yeah, there you
1: go what was the most rewarding part of it for you to to have that experience with those kids maybe just be a part of their life or, or to impact them um, but what was your favorite part of it
2: my, my favorite part is, was when i got a young person uh, that had never done it before, had never given a set of reasons, had never judged livestock, and to watch those kids get up and uh, walk at a judging contest, whether they were in the top ten of a species, they were in the top ten overall, they were in the top ten in reasons, whatever. I, that was, I mean, my my old uh, chest would just swell because I, I thought that was so cool that these kids who came in and every one of them said. I'll never be able to do that. I I can't do what those kids do. And I always would say, oh yes you can. You all can do this. If you just for willing to work hard enough and, and give it all you've got, you can all do this. And this is the great thing about judging is you don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be four, three speed. You don't have to jump six feet in the air. Man, all you have to do is be willing to work hard. And if you're willing to do that, you can be successful at this. And that's what I love so much about this game. I mean, there are kids that have raw talent and ability just like anything else. But you know what? There are kids who don't have a lot of talent who can be trained if they're open-minded and willing to work. That's what I think is so cool about this game.
1: And, you know, all the students you have over the years and, you know, say you may have 10 kids on a team for however many years – not all those people are going to go be stockmen and producers or, or even livestock judges. Um, but there's so many things other than that that those kids will learn on a judging team. What are, the, what are some of those things that, that your students will – some of the more valuable things that your students learned uh, while you were coaching them?
2: Uh, obviously, we can list the, the traditional things such as um, decision-making skills and speaking ability and, um, you know – we, we can You know, you can run a list of what, they, what the animal science department always tells you. Honestly, what I think that this activity does more than anything is it allows those young people to think on their feet and express themselves. They have the ability to make a decision and then defend it. And I think that is so critical in every day. No matter what we do every single day, we're asked in our jobs to make a decision and explain why. That's something that I do every day in Purina. It's something I did every day when I was training judging teams. So I think that's critical. And I think that every young people benefits, whether they are a, a top 10 national contender or if they're just the, the kid that wants to judge livestock because that's a good activity. And they're, they're not a gamer, but they're on the team and they come to practice every single day. And those kids were every bit as important to me as the ones who were, had the ability to be a high individual, because they became part of the group, they were part of that team, and and each each young person contributes in a, their own special way. And I, some of them, some of the greatest and the most fun I had was, was some of those kids who maybe weren't kids that were on the that made the team, but were on the team, and they would keep things light. They would tease their teammates. We would laugh. I mean, they had, um, they, they they were. They were comedy relief, if you will. I mean, we just had a ball with some of those kids. So, I think every every young person has a role on a judging team. I really believe that.
1: You've coached a lot of of people who are still, you know, in the industry, stockmen. There's a lot of sheep guys, a lot of guys who judge sheep shows. Is there any of those those people in particular that you're just extremely proud of, and maybe still have really good relationships with today? I,
2: I, I tell you that I, I really, um, I really enjoy the former students. Um, I I get random text messages from a lot of them, um, from many, many years ago to, to kids that I trained, you know, seven, eight years ago. So I, I like that. I mean, that just, that, that makes, that brings a smile to my face when those kids send me a text and just say, hey, happy birthday, or man, I hope you're doing good, thinking about you today, something like that. I just, well, that's really cool. But, you know, I have had the opportunity to train some or be a part of. I shouldn't say train any of them, but uh, be a part of some really good stockman lives. Um, I got to spend a couple of years with Will Winter there at Wintex, who is. I didn't teach that kid anything. That kid knew, had a, had an in, innate ability to evaluate livestock. Um, you know, Derek Chabot was one that is a very, very talented. Uh, person who who saw all species of livestock extremely well. Josh Cody does it. You know he was he was a great uh, livestock evaluator. And what was really funny about Josh Cody, though, we we um, nicknamed him Hollywood. But uh, man, he struggled with that reasons thing all the way until we were on our way to Kansas City, and we were at Oklahoma State University. We were, had judged some fat steers, I believe, and, and Josh had given a set of reasons. And, and it was right then, on our way to Kansas City, Missouri, that the light came on. I mean, reasons all of a sudden were easy for him. He started, he could see them, he could picture them. And, and, and it was like, I mean, night and day. It, the light just came on, and that was such a cool time, such a cool period to watch him just transition Instantly. It was so neat, and so he was—he was one that uh, I thought was really cool. I mean, I've had opportunity—the Gary Agars, the Ashley Judges, the uh, oh my gosh, you've got me to list names, and that's a shame because there's so many good kids that I had the opportunity to be a part of, and they're so so talented. But yeah, I, I was fortunate to be able to recruit really good kids, and I had moms and dads who were willing to to let me spend a couple years of Of their children's lives uh, let me be a part of it and i couldn't be successful we couldn't have been successful training judging teams without those really good kids and boy we had the opportunity to get some really good ones so anyway i I know i left out a million good people and i apologize josh crone was one patrick padgett you know there are tons of them that were just so so talented so anyway i i you probably backed me into a hole right there, Jake. I'm going to have people that are going to have former kids come to me and say, well, Clay, why didn't you mention me? And i will say, I should have. I'm sorry. sorry. He, he meant
1: to. He meant to mention you. So when you're, when you're putting judging teams together and you're trying to coach these kids to, to sort livestock, the ultimate goal is for them to, to place that class the same way the, the contest placed it and teaching contest logic. I remember when I was growing up, it was always something I struggled with. You know, I even had a – I busted a class at ULAMs one time when I was in high school, and I asked uh, one of the people that was there helping me, and I said, hey, can you explain this to me? I was like, I started the three ULAM. And he says, yeah, that's probably the one I'd buy, but she needs to be third. And it was something that always just kind of bothered me. Like, why are we – you know, where are our priorities, and why are we just trying to do that? Was how, do, how do you coach that into some kids, and, and how do you explain that to them and, and teach them how to talk their way out of it?
2: Yep. I, I will cool. honestly tell you that um, – that's a I don't Jake. That's a hard question right there because I, I would always I would always try to teach those kids to use the best ones. I always tried to, and my my rule was that all they ever had to do was place it like me, and that's all I cared about. I never I never really cared. I never taught them to coach for a committee. I seldom did. I ever even look to see who was going to be on the committee I really didn't care mm-hmm. because I don't know call it call it arrogance on my behalf or whatever maybe stupidity is the better word but I just wanted those kids to place them like me because I was an easier target for them to hit mm-hmm. than a group of officials from um, California, Oregon uh, Kentucky, Iowa, etc okay I was an easier target for them to hit and I always felt like, if they would simply just place like me, and if I was the reason that we got beat, I, I took full, I, I took it all on my shoulders. just like I did it. Nope. There wasn't you know, no butt chewings, nothing. It was all on clay. And I'd tell them that. I'd say, hey, that one's on me. I place it just like you did. You know, ain't no, no problem. And I, I never had any problem with telling those kids, hey, I... I screwed up. I didn't train you properly for that or you placed it like I did. And that's exactly how I want you to place it in the future because that one is the best one. And it does not matter what the committee said or decided that she was 20 pounds heavier or whatever, because that is irrelevant relative to real world livestock production. If you're interested in quality now, if we're totally interested from a commercial aspect and we're going to weigh them up, why that's a different deal. But you know, when we go to the livestock uh, judging arena, traditionally it's more show animals than it is, um, commercial. And so that's kind of where you, although believe me, I think that we sometimes forget about the commercial component and I think it's important. So that was something we did try to keep in mind. I tried to train our kids that way, but, um, I wanted them to just play some like me. Mm-hmm. That's all I ever wanted. So, and I think my kids would tell you that. Yeah, there you
1: go. So, so you coached from you said '99 until just a few years ago, and, and you were very successful the whole time, very involved with your teams. But at the, the same time, Allred Elliott Club Lambs is is happening, and you guys yeah. have finding tons of success. Um, let's kind of let's kind of jump back and, and start talking about that. Um, So you guys always kind of raise some sheep, but I see if I study your website, it seems like early 2000s is when stuff really kind of blew up for you guys. When you go about putting a a flock of sheep together and ewes and bucks in, say, the year 2000, where do you go and and where do you start?
2: I'll tell you, um, John John and Gene Allred and I became partners um, somewhere in the 90, 92, 93 time frame. And um, they had... Already been buying some cabinets, genetics. Uh, been buying some some ewes in particular. They maybe had bought a buck, but mostly females. And so that that group of ewes that they already had was mostly cabinets. And so when when we got hooked up and we were gonna get after it and start trying to climb the food chain, if you will, um, I wanted to stay within the gene pool that they'd already worked with. Now, they could have just as easily had um, Wintex or Dynamite or whatever at the time. It didn't didn't matter. That would have been the gene pool that we decided we were going to work with. It just so happened to be Cadmus. And, and I did. I liked those sheep. Um, I liked them because I thought that they were Hampshire. Uh, they had a Hampshire look to them. And I thought they had some, some, some look, some skeletal quality that I thought that a lot of sheep didn't. Okay, those sheep were Maybe a little longer necked, a little taller at the, at the top of their shoulder. Maybe their chest floors were just a little more elevated. They had a little more belly and flank in them. And I thought those sheep had some pin width. Now, muscle, they did probably did not have a lot of. And, but their skeletons were really good. Their loin edges were good. Their rack shape was really good. They were devoid of lower butt, as I recall for many, many years. They, they didn't have very much of that, but we worked around that, and and I, my my vision was always to, to raise those sheep that had a little extra quality and look. You know, I, I liked the way they looked. I, not that I thought they were better, they were worse, somebody else's was bad. I just liked the way they looked. It was simple, and so I kind of followed that, and that also... Uh, a young fellow by the name of Troy Keith uh, from Kentucky was interning with uh, Gary and Melita Kramlett there at the purple circle magazine at the time. And he actually came and lived with us and him and Mike Hancock were close friends. And, and uh, he's the one that convinced me that I needed to go look at Mike's stuff because it was all cabinets. And so we actually did, we flew out there and that was, that was when I bought the old broker buck, the first Hancock buck. And my gosh, we've, we went out there and I, I mean, I found Old Broker and that was the one Mike really liked and Troy liked. And so we bought him and he priced him to me at 5000 and that was back in 1990, what, five probably. It was a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. And my partner, he's like, well, I think we need him and speak for him. I'll send him a check, he said. And so... We spoke for him. He delivered him to the corp, and, and we showed that buck to everybody who would look at him when we got there. I mean, people would come out and look. They'd already heard about the the, the great Hancock buck, the high-dollar Hancock buck, and Mike was pretty popular at that time. I mean, he had that old 31 buck rolling pretty good. Uh, 411 was, you know, he had, I think he, at the time, he had probably already passed, but um he had 31 back on those 411 daughters and he had it rolling good and boy that was kind of the destination sheep stop in America at the time and so anyway we got old broker and then a uh, few years later we went back and got uh, trademark and trademark back on some of the broker daughters was really kind of what started us i felt like he was trademark was really different for the time he was the epitome of what i thought they were supposed to look like okay he was extended and tall shouldered and skinny necked and flat shoulder flat bladed and had a big groove back in him, but just really good looking and, and very sound. She walked around with his head up and he didn't have a didn't have a roach in his back. He was leveling his pins and she was just high quality and we used that buck pretty hard. He was kind of the, really the buck that set us up to have some success. To help he and Broker were the ones who set the set of females up for us to be successful because we started to line breed those and both of those were 31 411 deals. And so back onto those cabin issues, we were able to start to, to push some, some lineage and stack some lines up and make those animals just a little more predictable. So,
1: Legendary mindset will return after a word from our sponsors.
0: Unitedharvest.com is having some incredible holiday sales for you and your family. This year, go check out their entire catalog of beef, Angus Wagyu cross, uh, purebred Angus. We got houtrite pork, and we got American grass-fed lamb. Go try out any of those products at UnitedHarvest.com. Enter the promo code Friends15 for 15% off your first order. UnitedHarvest.com.
1: Rule Supplements, the boldest supplement company on the market. What we lack in grace and poise, we make up for in originality and results. Their motto is results matter because results are the driving factor in this industry. And no one ever talks about the fifth place ULAM. Their product line has your livestock covered with solutions for joint health as well as reproductive performance for all species. Their most popular products are Thick, Shredded R, the Formula, and Strutton. These products alone or combined have fed many of the nation's champions this year. The Grand U Exarbon, Indiana Stock Show, and Indiana State Fair were all fed Shredded R and the formula. The Grand Lamb at California Youth Expo, Kentucky Livestock Expo, added Strutton to expand their lead. The list of customer success includes Wisconsin Livestock Expo and the Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Colorado, and Tulsa State Fairs. There are more results than that, including, most recently, the Grand Champion Lamb at American Royal which uh, Rule Supplements would love to share, but they only get one minute. So follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Use coupon code JakePease for $5 off your order. Results matter. So you mentioned it was like 1995 when you got that first buck from, from Hancock. And when I picture some, some backdrop pictures from 1995 of those Texas shows and Oklahoma shows, they're, they're blue. They're kind of snake gutted and they're roached up and, and that's kind of like what the, the quota is. So at what point in time did, did level backs, you know, smooth shoulders, you know, sheep that just didn't look so tight. When did those come into style and, and work out for you?
2: I will tell you that uh, those came into style when they brought a young fellow by the name of Clint Cummings in to judge the Houston Livestock Show. And that guy came in there and he used a sheep, a cabinet sheep that Sam Silvers had, I believe, that was a really high quality, moderate, round bodied, good built one. And then we had a sheep uh, that the Weed family had there in uh, West Texas that was reserved. And he was also a trademark son. It was reserved at the Houston Livestock Show. And that was actually the turning point that folks said sound level good-legged sheep that were smooth and attractive were okay and we didn't have to simply muscle them we didn't have to have the biggest racked and the biggest butted and that was exactly what I felt like that they did they didn't have to balance they they were hard bellied they were off in their hip but they were as hard as a concrete they were skinny 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 probably tenth of an inch of fat hard-muscled, big-racked, and shapely. That's what they were. And, man, Clint Cummings caught some flack because those sheep had a little more fat on them. They had a little more fill in them. And, boy, the the old hardcore Texas guys were like, holy cow, this guy's lost his mind. There's another group of them who thought, wow, it's actually okay to, to have some fill in them and actually have them level and sound and incorporate some production traits that are very important that that's awesome and so that's the guy who actually i think allowed the state of texas to be okay with the kind that i thought was okay mm-hmm. and that was i mean that was that was good i mean i was excited at that point because that was the time that our our genetics took off that yeah. was it right then so For
1: sure. so I kind of have a question written down in here, and, and it's kind of based off of that. So basically the trend in the world was muscle, you know, big, shapely, hard, and not pretty at all. And before the, before that was even out of style, you were still trying to make these things level-spined, attractive, and balanced, and, and good built. How do you go about finding balance in, in raising sheep when you're trying to raise ones that are relevant and worth a lot of money, but still trying to make a set of ewes that are maybe before their time and kind of run into the future and maybe aren't quite so popular? How do you make those profitable in a time like that?
2: that, You know, that's a, that's a good question too. And I'll tell you where that all started It's when I was a kid, we would take our cows to the community pasture, which was about 17 or 18 miles. We had to, we would haul them by pot over and then we would trail them home in the fall. And, me being the youngest, I was always the the one who got to ride the very back end of those cows to push them. And the ones on the back end, as you would guess, after 15 miles, um, the ones on the back end were the cripples. Those were the ones that were tighter spined, straighter shouldered, straighter hocked. Their pasterns were the ones that snapped. Those cows did not stretch and flex and move. And so I watched that and I thought, well, why wouldn't we Why would we keep these? Why wouldn't we have those cows that were on the front of the line? Why wouldn't we have all of them like that instead of dealing with these crippled cows back here? And so I would throw ropes at them and, and heal those old cows and let them go. And uh, they couldn't keep up. They were, they were structural disasters. And so that's where my initial learning of structure came into play. And I didn't even know I learned it. That was one of those things that's like, Boy, those things are terrible. They were terrible. But that's where I learned it. And so then I, I took that through my judging career in senior college and then, you know, training judging teams, et cetera. That, that always stuck with me. And I, I always told that story to my kids, to my students. And, and that's also where those females came into play. I always wanted, and I'm not saying they were all perfect because they weren't, Lord knows they weren't perfect, but I tried to make those things sound, first of all. I wanted them to, to hold their skeletons together and be level docked, level topped. I wanted their necks to be up out of the top of their bodies, although they weren't all like that, but I wanted them that way. And I wanted their shoulders to be flat and I wanted their pins to be big. That was the criteria. I had a mold that I wanted those used to fit, and that was it. Not one time did I ever was I ever concerned about muscle, though. I wasn't, I mean, obviously, we had to have muscle, but my criteria for my females was a wedge made back, a big pin set, dead level, high-headed, and sound. I wanted them to all walk around and look good, and I didn't want them to be roached up. I hated that, and so that was the fundamental basis or the or the mold, the outline of what I wanted my females to look like, and when we when Cadmus was having all of their production sales, why I would select hard on those years that had some production value that they done a good job, but then they they met, met that criteria as well, and we we had at one time we had as as I would say as beautiful of a set of females as anybody because, um, they weren't they weren't hard doing. I know that uh, folks would see those ewes in Utah, and they were not at all what they thought. They thought they were hard doing and flat and narrow, and they were far from that. They were wide, big hip, soft bellied, big ribbed, and easy keeping just like those cows needed to be back in Wyoming on short grass country. That's what the ewes were. And I, I tried to keep it that way, and that was, that was very important. The, the female base is by far and away the most important thing that you can do. If you're breeding any kind of livestock, if you don't take care of your females, and you don't, if you're not critical of your females and make them do their job, then you're doing yourself a disservice. They, they need to be maternal to, to begin with. If they don't milk and take care of their babies, what good are they? That's their only job in the real world is to take care of their babies. And so we've all been guilty of it. Whether you're raising goats, you're raising cows, you're raising sheep. We've all said, oh, that's my favorite doe. That's my favorite you. She's done a good job of raising babies that I can sell. Although she doesn't have to put them on the milk machine or I have to bottle feed them or whatever. And You know what? They got to be moms first. And that's uh, that was a fundamental thing I always told my judging kids. They have to be maternal to begin with. They have to be sound to begin with. If they can't handle those two things, what good are they? Mm-hmm. And then we can use bucks to make more muscle, and that's where the terminal aspect came into it. I, I tried to, to get bucks that were sound and, and good-looking, but I, I wanted them to supply the terminal genetics if I could. And so.
1: So you've got this flock of ewes that are that are lined up. They're all attractive, and they, and they kind of fit that mold that you that you like to talk about. So where do you when you go to try and make breeding decisions for bucks? Um, are you? Are, and you said you kind of incorporate some power with the buck side, but do you do much? Um, you know, breed this kind of extreme to that kind of extreme, and try and find somewhere in the middle, or are you kind of breeding for consistency, or is or is more of it off off of pedigree? kind of how, what was, your, what was your genetic process in matings? I,
2: I, would, I would always breed towards the middle is what I would call it. I would always take, you know, uh, if there was a big hip, thick-ended, kind of a muscular U that was too short-bodied or whatever, then I would take her to, to a buck that was a little more extended, um, a little more, maybe not as powerful, but a little more look and quality. I would always breed towards the middle. If, if we had a ewe that needed more power that was long and extended, why well, I would take a little more terminal buck her way. So I always wanted to take the extremes off one end and the other and, and breed them so we could hopefully land somewhere in the middle. And um, if those ewe's were, were line bred and they were bred to do a good job, we could land a bunch of those things right in the middle. I'm not saying they were all... Houston stock show winners, but we could land a lot of sellable weathers right there into that middle ground by doing that. But we were fortunate enough that we had, like I said, we had a really good set of ewes, and I was adamant. I mean, I was—I would spend more money than most probably on females if I if I saw one that we needed, or I would keep. Boy, I would not sell very many of the good ewe lambs. Um, I'd just keep them I'd keep them and put them back in because those were so valuable to me and so that's that's what we did and that's how we made our flock get better was by keeping good females and then you know those bucks if you made a mistake buying a buck if you made a if you botched your the buy and got the buck that maybe didn't work those good females they would get you through you may not have you know a, a you know, a $7,500 weather in them, but you might have you a slug of $1,500 weathers that you can kind of get through your crop until you can go get the next buck because this one didn't work good enough. Right. The females will protect you. They will take care of your mistakes. In my opinion, if you've done your homework on the girls, So that's, that's my belief. So in a situation
1: where, you know, you've got a hundred, a pen of a hundred keeper u lambs and, and you can only keep, you know, fifty or less. You know, and they're all out of your bucks and your use. So arguably, you know, every one of them's got a piece that you could, you know, argue for keeping her. And you talked about those those things in balance and, and big hips and level backs and, and pretty fronted ones. But where do you what? Where do you draw the line and, and say you know that one's not going to work? She's she's out of here. What are those those qualities that you just don't want to stick around for in your keeper U lamb pen?
2: I, honestly, I think that that differs from year to year, depending upon. Um, what your priority is, okay? So I think truly good breeders are always trying to to get better. They're always trying to make a change for the better. And so the quickest way for you to um, add more bone and substance to your crop next year is to simply select those ewe lambs that have more bone and substance this time, okay? That's the easiest and the quickest way to do it because they're genetically already there and you, and you don't have to go spend the extra money to have them. So that's, that's your priority. That's your, that's your culling criteria for that year. Or, you know, it just depends on, to me, what it is that you've evaluated your lamb crop. And we did that all the time. I mean, every year we'd evaluate and say, okay, I need to make these sheep bigger pin next year. Well, guess what? Guess what the selection criteria was on those ewe lambs that year? They need to be bigger pinned, okay? Or maybe uh, maybe we've got some extra shoulder point in those lambs this time and we need to slap those shoulder points in a little tighter. Um, well, we would we would select those U lambs that were maybe just a little better at the point of their shoulder this time. So that's kind of, um, that's, it was a moving target. Um, so I would say we didn't always select the same kind every time. It was all based upon what I thought that the lamb crop Needed to improve for the next year.
1: So you, you, you we talked a lot about Cabinets and, and Hancock and where you go for bucks. Where did those two sit in in relation to each other and the rest of the industry? And where that you know they were they were on top of the world quite a bit and well known for it, but, but what did those bucks, you know, like, like we talked about leverage and, and broker and and all the rest of the ones you got from them, what, what did they have that the the rest of them didn't, that made you consistently, you know, go back there and, and find genetics?
2: The Cabness and Hancock were at the time, they were, they were King Kong. They were on the top of their game. They were the destination spot for every club land producer in America was to go to one of those two spots or both. And, and we, we tried to get to both of them as as best we could and I can remember when we would make the trip either to Kentucky or I would come to Oklahoma man that night before I was so giddy I was so excited I was I couldn't sleep I was so wound up that I was going to get to sort through all of those sheep the next day and try to find potentially our next stud buck you know I was I was so cool I mean I can't tell you it was like you were on a on a caffeine high that you couldn't go to sleep on because man, it was just the greatest you got to sort through them. And so I was excited about that. And, and um, leverage actually was born at my house and uh, Mike Hancock had sent me a young buck lamb, just Mike and I were good friends and he had sent me a young buck lamb to try. He was a late buck and he was one of them. He was going to keep and he liked him and, um, so he sent me this young little old exotic buck lamb out to Abernathy, Texas, to the chicken coop, basically. And, and uh, this buck was skinny, uh, but he was tall-fronted and he was freak shallow. He was big-pinned. And at the time, he was very hampshire in his type, you know, had, had really good ham character in his head and had, had a little bit of leg wool on him, which I'm, I'm saying that for the time was pretty good. It was, they were all frail. And um, Mike, he was so high on him, and he was so nervous that I wasn't going to like him. And the sheep was skinny, but his skeleton was impeccable. I mean, beautiful. And Mike called me and says, well, do you like the buck? I said, oh, Mike, I love him. I said, he's really good. He says, well, I need you to name him. And uh, I said, well, Mike, let's call him Rupp for Rupp Arena, Adolph Rupp, the legendary basketball coach at UK. And it's like, oh man, that's a great, that's a great name. And so that was Rupp and Rupp bred a few years that year and I got leverage. And then I got uh, the next, I think I got him maybe, I think it was that year. And I also got patent. Um, So he generated a, um, a few really nice sheep he he wasn't the most fertile buck in the world but we got leverage and we got patent both in that crop and let Mike come and bought part of leverage back and leverage had a little more power and muscle for the time and so that's what made him real unique and very useful for not only Mike Hancock but myself because he had a little more extra lower butt shape and stifle in him and that was always I mean was always the thing. We always know knew that we needed more muscle, more butt in no sheet. But I knew I didn't want to ever sacrifice the quality and look to get it. So it was always a slow process to add the muscle. And there were lots of folks who said, oh, Clay, I just, I can't buy one of those from you. They just don't have enough muscle for me. It's like, that's okay, I understand. But then by the time we were selling or showing those things at 12 months of age, they had enough muscle. And then those were the folks who said, Clay, I can't buy those. They're like, man, I think we might need to try to buy one of those next year. It's like, "Uh, it'd be awesome. I'd love to show them to you. But uh, that's what the thing was, is the maturity certainly helped those sheep. They got thicker with time, but leverage was the one that really allowed us to, to put some lower butt in those sheep with, and rack. He had an enormous rack, but um, he was the one that allowed us to start putting some extra muscle in them without wrecking them. And that was always my thing. Don't we can add muscle, but don't wreck their skeletons. For sure. so. so if you
1: look at your buck page, I mean, there's a lot of lot of bucks you raised and sold that went and made you know incredible females for a lot of people in the country and, and grand great great grandsires to a lot of sheep that are even still winning today. Um, but one of those bucks that a lot of people talk about is composure. And when you talk about composure, it's hard to find a, a show sheep in the country that doesn't have at least one shot somewhere. Um, if not a lot more. So, so he was raised by cabinists. So tell me about that day you went and found him and were, were you really looking for him or, or what, did he just kind of show up or, or how'd that go down?
2: Man, I, that, that's an awesome question. And I've, I've told the story about finding composure a couple of times, but not often. And I had seen, uh, We were looking for a buck. We were always looking for a buck, okay? At All Red Elliott, we were looking for the next buck. Whether we had just bought one yesterday, we were always looking for the next one. It didn't matter. We were trying to find one that could improve us and make us better. We were very aggressive, to say the least, at that time. And I had been to Cabness' at Corp time in April, and I had found that 64 sheep running out there in a pen with his mom at the time. And he was good-looking and really round-bodied and shallow and really high-headed, little skinny neck on him, and had the biggest old rack that you could ever imagine. Wasn't big enough hipped, a little frail, but cool-looking. And uh, I thought, well, he looks nice, but I I really was kind of needing one that was big-hipped. So I passed on him there, and he was skinny. I wasn't real worried about somebody finding him because he was such a little knothead. So I went back up there. Oh, gosh, a month later in May and ran through them bucks again, still looking. And man, I found him again. He was still there, 64. 64 was in a buck pen. They were getting ready for Sedalia. He was going to go to Sedalia in a group. Still skinny, still a little rough, but still really high quality and by far the, the roundest ribbed and shallowest, tallest fronted sheep in that pen. And I looked at him again and I thought, man, I just, I don't know. I just don't know if that's the one that we really need. His pins weren't big enough. And he was, man, he just had just a little bit of turn to his hip. And I was like, man, I just don't know if he's the right one. And finally, I decided I was going to make that trip one more time up there to Arapaho, Oklahoma. And look at them bucks they were taking to Sedalia. Because I wanted to just see them before they got to Sedalia because... Man, I, I always thought that those bucks changed a lot when they were in Sedalia with the heat. They they would dry down, they would empty out, they would, you know, just whatever. And so I never really felt like you, you could get a a real solid reading of those bucks of cabinets because those, those sheep were raised like sheep. They weren't pampered. I always felt like those sheep would change a little when they were in Sedalia. Once they were confined, they were, Water was either monitored or not, you know, et cetera. It didn't matter. They changed. And so I always wanted to see those bucks in their working environment before they went. And so I went up there and lo and behold, 64 was still in that pen and he was still thin. And I thought, my gosh, this buck must have coccidiosis. He just doesn't look good. And I I finally just asked Riley. I said, Riley, I said, that 64 sheep that you got in the Sedalia group, I said, would you sell him? I said, he's pretty thin. I said, ain't no way you're going to have him ready for Sedalia. This was, you know, two weeks before they were going maybe to Sedalia. And he he goes to the pen, he looks at him, he says, yeah, he said, I'd probably sell him. I said, what do you want? I said, Clay, I want 5000 for him. And I thought about it for a second. I said, you know what, I'll just take that buck. I'll take him. So I... Wrote Riley a check, loaded the buck that day, and we hauled him home and got him healthy. Hauled him back to New Mexico. I was in New Mexico at the time, I hauled him all the way back to New Mexico. Actually I didn't. I didn't ha- I hauled him home on the way home from Sedalia. I didn't have a trailer that day. My bad. But I stopped on the way home from Sedalia. We picked the buck home and hauled him home and, and went to work kind of getting him put back together healthy and wormed him, treated him for coccidiosis, and the old buck kind of put himself back together and we got some pictures of him as a buck lamb, and those are the pictures that you folks see now on the website or the the promotional picture uh, of composure. He was uh, an interesting animal. I got the first crop of lambs out of him, and I was absolutely sick. They were terrible. Those lambs were absolutely terrible. They were all off in their hip. They were all narrow-pinned and they looked like their back legs had a lot of set to them, and I was like, oh my god, I got an absolute freaking disaster on my hands, an absolute disaster. Luckily, we'd had enough success prior to that folks were still wanting to buy lambs. They came out, they bought lambs out of the buck. Why? I really don't know, but they did, and Long about August, I had kept a group of ewe lambs back out of him because you just you need to keep some ewe lambs back. You never know a buck's true value until you get their females in production. And so I kept ewe lambs. Long about August, my ewe lambs were really nice out of him. They were, their hips had leveled up. Their pins had gotten fat enough and wide enough. And their back legs were no longer of concern. Their racks were big, their heads were straight in the air, and they were looked phenomenal. And about that time I was thinking my lambs were starting to come together. I was starting to get calls from my feeders. And they're like, Clay, this weather we've got's pretty good. I was like, man, that's awesome. My lambs look nice. And 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 it wasn't just one. I mean this was was um Deuchman there had, had bought one and Alan Miller had some and Clems had some and you know, just on and on and um Terica Taylor had one of the first ones that out of that deal and son of a gun, they those sheep they they were good. And then that year they won. They won a bunch. Terica won San Antone with one. The Deutschman boy won the Fall Classic and maybe San Anton with one and um, God, we and then the following year we were grand in Houston with one, and the Composure genetics just exploded. Mm-hmm. But that was that was cool. But you know what the really good part was is those females. I never had a set of females that were any better than those Composure daughters, because not only were they maternal, but they were big ribbed and easy keeping. They they didn't require very much feed. They were level. They were sound and I could breed them to damn near anything, and they would generate. And, and I will tell you guys, it wasn't a matter of, oh, my God, I was on the hunt to find composure. It was one of those things that I finally just wore me down because i seen him enough times, and he was good. His skeleton was so good every time that I finally just said, you know what, I, I need to try that sheep. I, I found him three times out of 800 head of babies running around at Cadmus Club Lamb's. And I figured that that sheep was, yeah, exactly, in one pin. I figured that that sheep was worth a shot. And my gosh, it wasn't, it wasn't skill. I'm not trying to tell you that. we skill finding out, and that was nothing but luck. That son of a buck just basically ran up and bit me for the third time and said, You know what? You're an idiot if you don't buy me because I'm going to do big things. So we did, and he did do big things. I mean, that, that is, I, I, I think today that buck still has a place in the industry. He, he's far from as stout-boned as what we want them now, but I will guarantee you that we could create females right now that could be bred to some of the most relevant bucks in the business, and they would generate winners in, in, in seven months. Yeah, so great. I believe that.
1: And I, and I had that question written out, and it, and it was, if you could assemble a set of 10 ewes that you owned and raised between 2000 and 2005, and you know briefly describe that set of use and and how would you make them produce relevant highly competitive you know high you know high dollar popular sheep in 2020 and and how would you do it if you had unlimited access to everyone's bucks and an embryo program
2: you know obviously that was to me that the biggest problem with with the composure and even just the sheep in general that we were successful with in that period of time they were all too frail and and i was I was one at the beginning of it who thought, yeah, you know, we probably should stouten these sheep up, but man, I, I really—that's another story. But I really think we went too far for a while and and got into some problems. But obviously, the first thing that needed to be done with those composure daughters, and I would I would keep the some of those composure. And I was a huge fan of the uh, the uh, two seventy seven buck. I thought that was a moderate. Big, hipped, terminally shaped kind of a deal that was really good ribbed and chested. Um, I liked that. I had some 277 daughters around there that I loved. Those composure daughters, I loved. A group of those trademark daughters would have been valuable, um, you know, to to put into your group of 10. And then, honestly, I would go and find um, one of those bucks that are... Uh, really really hampshire and type lots of leg wool lots of um, leg feathering lots of uh, face cover uh, eye channels the whole bit very hampshire and i would breed them to those that set of females um, and and try for the try for the leg wool and, and still keep their balance and quality in them that the bone and leg wool would have been the biggest thing that would have kept those gals from from folks just saying, "Whoa, those things are phenomenal right now today." So that would have been the thing is, you know, whether that's a, whether that's a Franklin buck, whether that's a Wheaton buck, um, you know, whether that's a, a Justin Nathan deal, you know, one of those bucks that is very, very, um, not not necessarily huge bone. I'm not really hunting a huge bone one for those years. I'm hitting one that has tons and tons and tons of leg wool. Yep. That's what I'd be hunting, average bone, adequate bone, tons of fur. That's where I'd be headed.
1: So this is something I've kinda of, we've kind of talked about a few few times on some interviews here, but shag. You know, you, you described a sheep in, in the early two thousands as being really shaggy and then said compared to now, not at all, but shag really kinda of took off there right in the you know, two thousand ten and thereafter and, and it seemed like sheep, the qualities of their bodies just kinda of went downhill a lot. Uh, because of the shag um kind of how does how did that trend affect the industry and and, and why did it take such a big why, why was it so important so fast in the show ring do you think
2: huh. uh, jake i don't that, that i don't know that's a tough question why did it take oh well, i think some of it was because at the time we had tremendous success and we were we were winning in texas uh, with sheep that were exotic and good looking and had ample muscle, but were too frail. And I really think that at some point there was a group of folks who had had enough and they said, you know what? Those sheep, I don't like those sheep. They're too fragile. They're too frail. We need to push the industry and make them stouter." And I think that group of folks decided that was important and and I'm not saying it wasn't I think we did need to stouten up I think our sheep were too frail and and that's where we went and bought the old trunk buck too to try to help stouten some of our stuff up but I really think that's why it became so important was to try to derail some of those exotic good-looking sheep that were successful and as soon as that happened though I tell you what, you're right. The quality of those sheep went downhill rapidly. We accepted low fronted, buck kneed, straight shouldered, deep chested, deep sternumed, plain necked, low quality sheep that were big legged and thick ended. We accepted them and touted them as great ones. And I tell you, this guy personally got so frustrated and so fed up because that, not only did they go against what i thought good sheep were and so that was selfish okay from my but the part that really ate me up was the fact that they were going against quality livestock that they, they were not we were we were selecting champions that were the best the best in the business that were absolute cripples that were coarse that were ugly and they went against the production traits that I think are so important. And, and I would hope that at some point in time that my, my dad was a stockman, my, my brothers are stockmen and I would hope that someday I'll be able to be a stockman. But when those animals, when, when we started breeding those big boned, heavy structured bucks to get those lambs to look like that, we couldn't get those babies out of our ewes because their, their feet were bigger, but their ankles were bigger and their knees were bigger. Okay, they had big joints. And with that came a skull that was significantly wider than we've ever dealt with before. And if you recollect, those big hooves and those big ankles are coming out of the same hole that that big wide skull's coming out of. And those ewes couldn't have them. And so we are pulling babies right and left or we're doing C-sections on them because we couldn't get them out because their pelvises were too small. And that right there, when we pulled our first little group of those, my wife said, Clay, this is ridiculous. This is wrong. What we're doing in this business is wrong. And I agreed with her wholeheartedly. At that point, the show lamb business became nothing more than a circus to me. And it went through, we had a circus going on from about 2011 to about 2017, about seven years of an absolute circus that I thought was pathetic. I was so down on the industry. I was so down on the people who were pushing that crap to us. Um, Big bone, big feet, big skull, big muzzle, all that stuff was so wrong. And that's why I always thought that, hey, I like that leg wool, and I like that ample bone size, but I love that leg wool because that leg wool doesn't bind up nothing in that birth canal. It's a lot easier
1: to pull a furry leg out of one than a huge stout leg.
2: Yes, and so, and I'm not, believe me, I don't want anybody to listen to this and say, well, Elliot likes those frail ones. Clay doesn't like frail ones. That was what we had when we were successful. Okay? I don't like them frail I like them to have ample bone and foot I want it all to match I want their foot to match their good looking skeleton okay but I don't want their feet and their heads to cause me problems in the lamb and sure. So.
1: and you know although like you said there it was it was a it was a gap and it's kind of closing it seems like I think through AI and flushing, I think everyone's sheep at, at this point, you know, have plenty of muscle, are super furry. It's kind of hard to go and, and find a group of sheep that aren't really furry anywhere you go nowadays. Do you think we've found a middle ground in terms of quality? Maybe got their bodies close to where they used to be, but still kept with those furry and, and muscle trends, maybe? I,
2: I, would, I would like to say that we have made some big strides to get back to quality sheep that are... Built good, that have ample muscularity and shape, that have adequate bone and really good leg wool. And I'd like to think that we are trending towards the right kind again. Um, But I'll be honest, boy, I was sick. I was really down on on this industry in general because I thought that we'd lost our ever-loving minds for a while. And now, yeah, I believe because of the use of AI... And, and I also believe that some of the, the trim-setting breeders right now are, are pushing some of that as well. They, they believe that those animals need to have some quality and some look. And, and I think they realize that we can put bone and muscle in those things very quickly. And I believe that we can. I always thought that we could do that very fast. What is hard to put into them is structure and skeleton and look and quality. Those things are, man... That that takes an eternity to breed into them, it doesn't take a whole lot to breed out of it, and you can dang sure put bone and muscle in them pretty quick. One or two generations, you can have them with plenty of power, in my opinion. So,
1: and when we go about making making change and strides and changing the trends in the industry, whether it's you know influential breeders or even major judges and in, in what they continuously choose. Um, but how as an industry can we continue to make these sheep better? What has to happen? Is is it the right judges have to be chosen, or, or or what has to happen for for people to continue to want to to up the quality of their stock?
2: I'm a firm believer that we need to have quality judges sorting these things. People that are progressive minded, that uh, certainly believe that uh, they need to have they need to look like show animals. Okay, these are these are show these are. This is a beauty beauty contest. It really is. I mean, if it wasn't a beauty contest, we wouldn't be wrapping legs and rinsing leg wool and spending all of the hours that we do to make that stuff look right if it wasn't a beauty contest. It is a beauty contest. We need judges who can appreciate those things. We need judges who can appreciate their skeletons and their structural integrity and their balance and their youth and their design and, you know, all of those things, their, their shape, their muscle, all those things that, are, that fit together. And, and to me, I think that those people that are judging need to be breeders. I think they need to be people that have had the ability to lamb some ewes and have had their ha, have, have been in elbows deep in the backside of one of those females trying to bring lambs out alive or bringing them out breach or... You've got one with the head back or you got one with too big a, a skull that you can't pop through that um, cervical ring. You can't get it through. And so I, I think that those are the people that need to be judging these shows for us. And I, I'm a judging coach. I was a judging coach. And I certainly believe in, in the program. But I'm telling you what, just because you're a livestock judging coach, does not make you qualified to judge a sheep show, a hog show, a cattle show, etc. It doesn't. Not at a big level. If you want to hang out at the county fair barn and do that, more power to you. But to uh, to to not have a background in it and not have a passion for it, a true passion for for the sheep industry, then I don't think you should be judging sheep shows. I don't have a passion for the swine industry. I, I respect. Folks that are in the swine industry, but you're not going to catch a, this guy judging hog shows, because I don't think I'm qualified. I know I'm not qual. I don't think I know I'm not qualified, and the major reason why I'm not qualified is I don't breed them, and I'm not passionate about them. There are folks who are much more of those two things that will do a much better job, and so that's what I think. And, and if we have folks that are truly in the business and they're involved in the sheep business, they're passionate about it. They're going to be the ones that are trying to find those sheep that are on the next level, in my opinion, that are truly hard to create, hard to breed, hard to, hard to build, etc. And those, I think, are what, what need to be at the backdrop, those ones that are so challenging to make, that are almost a freak show, right? Okay, sound, sound, good-looking, muscular, shapely, furry, all those, ex- a freak show. Those are the ones I think should be at the backdrop because they're the hardest to make. Yeah. But so many folks are okay with what I would call the sub quo, yeah. okay? The par, the average, or just a little above average. And, and I think we need to have people who walk into the ring and say, son of a buck, that one is the one. I mean, they should just hit you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. When you're judging the North American or the Houston Livestock Show, and when that son of a buck comes in, the ring you should know if you're truly in the game you should know immediately mm-hmm. that one mm-hmm. is likely going to win this whole kitten caboodle mm-hmm. so those are the judges we need
1: For sure. and just kind of something to bounce off that I heard, I heard someone say it once but when you put when you find guys whose entire livelihood and existence depends on their ability to to make those kind of sheep and, and raise them and find them I think it becomes so much more clear to them when that One who truly is unique and truly is hard to make, and you know they they know the definition of that so much better.
2: Absolutely,
1: that's a fact. Yeah, and and this brings me into one of my one of my closing questions, and it's kind of one of one of the ones I'm more excited about for this interview is, if if you know in in a imaginary world where one guy picks every judge for every Texas major for a year, and in that world that guy is Clay Elliott, who do you pick for all? I think there there's five of them, including Dallas. Um, Who who do you pick and and why?
2: You know, this is another one of those questions that I think is a little bit of a trap because I, I really believe there's a lot of folks who are very qualified um, and, and see livestock very well. And I always used to tell uh, our kids and and folks who would ask about the judging teams why we had success. And I said it was never because I felt like I saw those animals any better than anybody else. That was never the reason. The reason was because I had better kids and because I tried to teach those those kids the right things. And that's the same thing I think that stems into this. There are so many talented folks who evaluate livestock so well. The, the problem that I perceive and I think that most see right now is is I think the some of the politics get in the way of who's, you know, who's popular, who's buying, who's sheep. Um, if, I, if I'm judging this show, and if I don't use this particular guy, will I be able to sell my lambs next year? You know, there's a lot of things, you talk about that livelihood, Jake, and there's a lot of things that play into it, and well, that's a, that's a big deal, because you're thinking about, well, can I, if I don't use this group, or this, this guy, I might not be able to sell them. I might I might I might be broke next year. I might be out of the business, okay? And so I think there's a problem. So the guys, the guys, the women, whoever is judging, that will just stick their head in the dirt and judge the animals, my hats are off to you. And I will tell you that when when we were knee deep in trying to sell these weathers, et cetera, I was not a I probably wasn't a very good show judge. And the reason for that was because you're always kind of looking out for some buck, you know, am I gonna be able to sell that high dollar buck next time? Or is that guy right there? I know he's interested in a buck next year. I better, better keep him in play here, you know. I tell you that, not, not to maybe tell on myself so much, but to tell you that ooh, we've sold our U's, we don't have a a U on the place currently. And I have no pressure. And, and I judged some ewes in Louisville the other day at the uh, North American, the commercial ewe show, and that was the most fun I've had maybe ever judging sheep. And the reason for it, the quality was excellent. The, the main reason, though, was because I had zero pressure. There was no pressure whether I was going to sell a sheep next year to so-and-so or so-and-so, and I had no political push, and I loved it but most folks can't say that and i understand that and that's that's really a shame so if we can get judges who really have no no reason no no political push to do anything i think that one of the folks who is like that is scott griner i've always i may not love the kind of sheep scott griner loves but that's okay because i know what scott griner loves and he loves that kind every single time He's not going to deviate, and he doesn't care which kid holds it. He's going to find the one he likes, and I, I appreciate that. My hats are off to that guy because I always felt like that he gives every young person a fair shake regardless of who you are, what team you play for, etc. That's one that I like. Um, you know, Craig Beckmeyer, um, Brad Angus, um, Gene Wynn. There are some really good people who I think evaluate them well. Honestly, Jake, I think there's a set of young people, young folks who need an opportunity. That I hear all the time. We need more young judges because we keep running the same older folks through time and time and time again. You know the, you know the Marvin Insers, the the Scott Grinders, etc. Okay, I I get it. I think. I think there are a group of young folks who are very capable of doing, maybe they're not ready to do the Houston livestock show, but you know what they need to be doing the state fairs right now. And let's get them prepared to step into the North American step into San Antonio. There's a tremendous amount of young folks that, um, that are, are ready to take that step. And I think there's some brilliant young minds. There really are the, the, they're just, I mean, Jake, I think that you're one of those. I think that, you know, uh, Derek Chabot and a Josh Cody, those, are, those aren't young guys anymore, but they're still young to me. There's a John Romero running around. There's a Tim Hubbard running around. I mean, there's... Kyler Lee. Kyler Lee, absolutely. There's a uh, Cooper Bounds. There's a, you know, there's several of these young, young guys who I think are unbelievably talented. Logan Jackson is one that's a young kid that's very talented. I mean, man, we just need to get him out and go. And I mean, don't don't be afraid of these young people. These kids have brilliant minds and they've been trained by some of the very best people. Give them a shot. I mean, we need those kids. We need them. Instead of people telling us we don't have them, bullarchy, let's cultivate them. We've got them, let's cultivate them.
1: You know, the conversation we had about, about two minutes ago where you where you got into depth about what's going through your head, judging those shows and that pressure, um, I really respect you for saying that. I think every single person who judges, that pressure's in their head, whether they say it is or not. And I think the fact that you brought it up and spoke about it openly, I really respect that, Clay. I think that's that's very noble of you. Um, but as we finish this interview, uh, let's kind of talk about Common Day. You said you sold all your use. Um, if you're new to the industry and you hear Clay Litt's name, you probably don't think of Composure. You probably think of Purina. Um, so I understand that's a really big deal for you and, and a major part of your life now. Let's talk about that just a little bit.
2: Yeah, I took a, I took a role with Purina, I guess, roughly seven, eight years ago now. And, and that role has evolved into my title, which is a, a small ruminant technical consultant. And all that long title means is that I basically help to run the the sheep and goat business okay it is kind of my baby and i try to create products and formulas and work with great people within an organ this organization to help promote it and bring products to you folks that are in the business and to me this was something that i thought was was lacking was a void in the industry was a a feed company that was actually um, catering to or trying to help the small ruminant business. There really, There's some regional mills and stuff that do some of that, but there really wasn't a big uh, company that was a feed company that was doing that. And I sure thought that we could help. And we've created some really neat products that all of which have been used here at my place over the years before they ever came to market to you folks. Um, the Accuration, the Accuration tubs. You know, that Delta lamb and you, the even the goat grower finisher. I've got a little set of goats now. You probably didn't know that, Jake. But I've got a little set of commercial Spanish does. And the reason that I have them now is so that I could learn a little more about the goat business and the goat nutrition side of things. Because I felt like I was adept at the sheep side but knew very little about the goat side. And I thought if I truly was going to be able to help the goat folks that I needed to, to feed some of my own and understand the commercial goat business just a little better. And so I do have a set of those. And that business within Purina has grown so fast and so rapidly. And they have allowed me to hire a a young lady by the name of Maggie Ambergy to to help um, do some work for us on the Eastern half of the United States. And she's doing a magnificent job. Um, But this thing has grown so rapidly that uh, it has taken a tremendous amount of my time and I, I enjoy it and the part that I maybe enjoy the most is creating products that actually have a purpose th- that can help people. I mean we created a, a wind and rain mineral that was high in calcium to help us alleviate some hypocalcemia uh, problems when those use use go down, when those babies are in the last trimester and they're pulling so much calcium from mom that and we, we had that problem. We had a huge problem. And so we fixed it with a mineral and, you know, some, some things just that we see on a daily basis here, I thought we could help nutritionally. And, and so that's, to me, my goal and what I get to do every day. And that's what kind of wakes me up in the morning and says, hey, you know, we got, we got problems to solve. And I like that. I enjoy that very much
1: well uh, we're pretty much done but you, you mentioned Maggie and we'll give her a little bit of a shout out she'll be mad at me um, she gave me a question to ask you about a possum and a judging van and we, we didn't get to it earlier so if we finish up let's, let's finish with that story and, and what is that even about because I have no idea
2: well I tell you when you're in a, in a judging van for hours and days uh, man you gotta have something that's a little lighthearted. and when I was a, a kid at Casper College um, we were on our way to Kansas City and we had just run across a fresh roadkill possum on the road, a little two-lane road out there in Missouri. And so we stopped and we stuffed that possum into a garbage sack. We put it in the back of our van, tied it up, put it in the back of our van. And when we got to the motel that night, there were multiple judging teams who were staying at that motel. And so what we did is we went and figured out which judging van had not locked all of their doors. And lo and behold, there certainly was one that didn't lock their back doors. We crawled into that van, unlocked it, and stuck that dead possum in the bag underneath the driver's seat of that van. And that was when Kansas City and Louisville were back-to-back. So you would make the, the trip into Kansas City judge and then two days later you were judging in Louisville and that particular possum managed to make that trip from outside of Kansas City a couple nights before the American Royal all the way to Louisville and as you can imagine he was probably a little rank and he had swelled up so big that they couldn't get him out from under the chair once they found him but we were on our way into the judging contest in Louisville and they had all their vans, all the windows in their van open. And so we all stuck our head in the vans just to kind of get a whiff of how rank that thing was. And, man, we were laughing so hard, and we went inside there. And Jack Humphrey was the coach there at Laramie County Community College. And our judging coach, Kelly Burrits, he asked, him, he says, well, Jack, your, your van, when we noticed, has all the windows down in it. He says, don't you think you should lock that thing up for fear somebody will steal it? He says, My God, I hope they would steal that thing. That's a rottenest smell in this van. He says, This is the cleanest group of kids I'd ever hauled. And somebody is not taking a bath. It is rotten in that van. And we were laughing. I mean, we laughed so hard. And I guess that Jack Humphreys' wife was with him on that trip and she finally had enough. So she took that van that day of the contest and took it to a service station and made them find that what was smelling. And they found that old dead possum all bloated up and swelled up underneath that front seat. They had to take the front seat off, in order to get him out without busting that possum. But uh, that was absolutely—we laughed until we had tears in our eyes. That was one of the greatest stories ever. But, yep, old dead possum in the in, underneath the front seat of the judging van. Well, there you
1: go. Thank you, uh, thank you so much, Clay, for sitting down and and talking with me. Had a great time, learned a lot, and. I got down to it, huh?
2: Man, I, 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 it was good. It was inter. It was fun. It was. It was really fun to kind of go down memory lane a little bit, and so that was kind of neat. I appreciate that, Jake. That was fun.
1: And welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, lot of history there. A lot of sheep genetic talk, um, which is something that we don't always get. Um, Clay is really passionate about lining stuff up and and making those good female families. And ultimately, just just good females. Um, he's very famous for that, and I, and I really think it was it was cool to hear him discuss all those things um, in the way that he did. Uh, but anyways, guys, catch us next week. Um, but in the meantime, feel free to check out the show with Cannon Brown, Cattle Pros with Jake Scott, or the Keeper Pen with Jenna Wheeler and Matty Caldwell. Um, anyways, I'll see you guys next week.